This is the Scottish Football Citizen, bringing you the best of Scottish football from the past. I'm Andy Kerr, and this week we bring you an interview with journalist and author Michael McEwen as he prepares to release his latest book, The Ghosts of Cathkin Park, that takes a look at the demise of Third Lanark throughout the 1960s. Before we get started, here's your weekly dose of trivia. How many honours did Third Lanark win in their history? We'll give you the answer at the end of the podcast. 1967 was arguably the greatest ever year in Scottish footballing history. Scotland defeated England 3-2 at Wembley to become unofficial champions of the world. Celtic lifted the European Cup in Lisbon by beating Internazionale. Rangers reached the final of the Cup Winners' Cup while they narrowly lost to Bayern. Kilmarnock reached the semi-finals of the Fairs' Cup where they lost to Don Reeves' Leeds United. And Dundee United gave Barcelona a bloody nose in the same competition. Despite the great achievements of Scottish teams in that year, one of the saddest events in Scottish footballing history also occurred in 1967. And it could have been avoided had things gone even slightly differently. 1967 was the year in which Third Lanark AC, one of Scotland's oldest professional football clubs, ceased to exist after a tumultuous decade of chaos and mismanagement at boardroom level that seeped down into the playing staff. Formed in 1872 as the Third Lanarkshire Rifle Volunteers, the club took part in shooting contests as well as playing football. In 1903, their name changed to Third Lanark Athletic Club as they cut their military ties and moved from their old stadium in Govan Hill, called Cathkin Park, to the newly vacant Second Hamden Park that Queen's Park had recently left. The Second Hamden was renamed New Cathkin Park, with the new prefix eventually being dropped. Thirds were often able to attract bigger crowds to Cathkin than their near neighbours Queen's Park were able to bring to Hamden due to the high high being professional. At that time, the Spiders were famously amateur and would not lose their amateur status until 2019 when they finally became a professional club. Thirds were doing well on the pitch in the late 50s and early 60s, but the boardroom structure of the club meant that the club was never far away from being caught in a precarious position. The arrival of Bill Hiddleston to the board, along with several of his cronies such as the lawyer and Labour Party councillor James Riley, is seen as the beginning of the end for the club by many. Under the stewardship of Hiddleston, Cathkin Park fell into a state of managed decline as plans were mooted to move the club to a new stadium in East Cobride and then to another new stadium in Bishop Briggs. Sadly, the club was wound up in 1967 as they played their last ever game away to Dumbarton. In the years since their demise, attempts have been made to resurrect the club and an amateur team currently play under the name Third Lanark. This Phoenix club has been attempting to return to their spiritual home of Cathkin Park, which is owned by Glasgow City Council and is a public park. Michael McEwen is a sports journalist and assistant director of Bunkered magazine, as well as the host of the Bunkered podcast. Away from golf, Michael has an interest in the history of Third Lanark and Cathkin Park, 
and set out to write his own book about the demise of one of Scotland's grand old clubs. He also wanted to get to the bottom of how exactly a Glasgow institution such as the High High was able to disappear completely and ask if it really was inevitable that thirds would go bust. Without further ado, here's Michael to give us a taste of his book and some of his football memories. I'm speaking with Michael McEwen. Michael is a journalist who has written a book called The Ghost of Cathkin Park, The Inside Story of Third Lanark's Demise. So first of all, Michael, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Yes, thank you very much indeed, Andy, for inviting me on. It's uh, a second podcast of the day. We have our own one here at PSP, the, the Bunkered Podcast. So I'm all warmed up for you and all ready to go. Since you've done other publications such as Bunkered as well, do you find much of a difference in your work between, say, going between golf and football? Yeah, to a point. Um, you know, it's. I, I feel like I am probably more at home writing about golf. I've been doing it for, for nearly 20 years now. And that's not something that I ever anticipated to do. You know, I, I got into the journalism and sports writing with a view to being the, the next Graham Spears. I think like most young guys who were growing up in the, the 90s and the early noughties, that was, and wanted to be a sports writer, you look at the likes of Graham and Michael Grant and guys like that as the, the gold standard, Hugh McDonald, obviously, as well. So, yeah, I, I kind of fell into golf by accident. And I started here at Bunkered in 2004, planned to stick around for two years and here I am, 17, nearly 18 years later, still plugging away. But it's great. It's, it's nice to have the, the chance to, to write about a sport that you're passionate about for your living, as I am with golf, obviously, and to have bosses that give you the flexibility and the latitude to go and write about other sports and other passions that you have. So I'm very lucky to have the best of both worlds. Now, moving on to football from golf, um, you mentioned in the foreword of the book that you moved to Glasgow when you were 12 years old. You were already football crazy by that point. What um, what were your first footballing memories? You know, I came to football quite late. I was probably, by, by Scottish kids' standards, that is, I would have been about eight or nine, I think I was, when I first took an interest. And I can't remember exactly how or why. I'm sure it has something to do with my friends. But the first thing that really stands out was Rangers versus Aberdeen in the Scottish Cup final, or Skull Cup, I think it would have been back then, in 1993. And I remember there was a news bulletin on the, the ITV News or BBC News, whatever it was, announcing that Rangers had just won the Scottish Cup and had completed the treble. I have a feeling maybe Neil Murray scored that day, Mark Hately as well. And so that was when I really started taking interest. But the big memory that stands out is actually from the following season when Rangers were trying to become the first club to win back-to-back trebles. And I'd obviously decided my allegiances were with the blue half of Glasgow by that point. And so I'd never known any defeat or disappointment. We'd won the, the League Cup that season. If you remember, Ali McCoy's overhead kick against Hibs at the old Celtic Park. And we won the league at Cantor. And then we lost in the, the Scottish Cup final to Dundee United with that horrific goal, that comedy of errors that led to uh, Craig, Craig Brewster, was it? Tapping in. And I remember that night, my, my grandfather wasn't very well at the time. And we were still living in Orkney. My dad had come down to Mabel, where he lived, to, to visit my granddad. And he put him on the phone to me. And he, uh, 
because I was obviously distraught and gutted. I couldn't believe that Rangers had somehow contrived to lose a match. <laughs> I wasn't used to it. And so being a young lad, there may have been tears. And my dad put my granddad on the phone to me. And I remember him just saying quite clearly, if Rangers won every time, no other team would bother playing. And that stuck with me. So that's really my, probably my earliest memory. And it was a bit of a, a reality check, a, a real wake-up call that... Thank God he gave me, given what happened after 2012. <laughs> you mentioned when you moved to Glasgow, you, I take it, would have been very interested in all things football and wanted to just kind of eat it up, devour it all. When did you first become aware of the story of Third Lanark? Yeah, it's a funny one. You know, I, I remember probably when I moved to Glasgow, at that point, like you say, you're football daft, you're consuming everything you can. And I had all the, the books and all the records and videos and newspaper reports. I was always fascinated more so with stories than trying to play like the best players. My mates wanted to watch Match of the Day or sports scene and go out the next day and reenact one of the goals they'd seen or, you know, try to perfect the Klinsman dive celebration. I was always much more interested in doing match reports. So I was the weird kid that wrote match reports after watching sports scene. I would then you know, type up something on my dad's old Apple Mac too. So because of that, because I paid a lot of attention, I very quickly became aware of this team called Third Lanark that had died many, many years earlier. So they were always there in the back of my mind. And it was just as I got older, I became more and more curious. You know, I wanted to know a bit more about them, where exactly it was that they played. From that, I discovered Cathkin Park, which is largely still there to this day, their the old home ground. And I went and walked around it many, many years ago, and it, it just struck me straight away. You know, when you go somewhere that has history, that has been uh, a significant place in the past, it still retains some of that aura. And that's the thing that I was struck about walking around what's left of Cathkin Park. And it just had this really spectral, eerie feeling to it. So that led me to push on and try and find out a bit more about them. Then when I discovered that the the year of their demise ultimately coincided with what was one of the, the, the greatest, if not the very, very best year that Scottish football has ever had, just struck me as this really weird juxtaposition. And I wanted to know why. You know, I, again, I suppose my Rangers support and kind of came in there. I wanted to know who was responsible, why this happened, how could such an institution have been allowed to disappear? And there was nothing, there was nothing there to to really refer to other than old newspaper reports. So that prompted me to to push ahead with the idea for the book. Uh, you mentioned as well going to Cathkin Park and the experience and that kind of strange eerie feeling about it. That's the feeling that I certainly got the first time that I visited. And I find it's almost like a kind of living museum and living in the sense that, you know, not only do you have three sides of terracing still there, albeit most of it is actually alive underneath, um, you know, tree roots and things with half of it being overgrown. Obviously, there's been parts of it that have been cleared by volunteers and uh, new crush barriers have been there. But I just find it very very unusual seeing everything there and I think you raise a very good point when you say about 
1967 being the greatest ever year, arguably, for Scottish football. Celtic win the European Cup. Rangers are narrowly beaten by Bayern in the Cup Winners' Cup. Kilmarnock reached the semi-finals of the Fair Cities Cup. Dundee United even beat Barcelona for not the first time. Scotland then go and become the unofficial world champions down <laughs> at Wembley. And then suddenly, like you say, when you look at newspapers around the time, there's not really a lot of column inches that are dedicated to a very sad demise of a real Glasgow institution. Now, you go back in the book to the very, very early days of Third Lanark, you even go as far back as Imperial France. Did you ever expect <laughs> your research to take you back as far as that? Not in a million years, not at all. I mean, yeah, that, that, was, a, that was a strange jumping off point really for the book, but, you know, it was... It, it felt like the most logical place to start because that's where their roots are in, in a bizarre roundabout way. You know, Thirds formed out of the the Third Rifle Volunteers, part of the the, the British forces, such as they were at the time, uh, with Napoleon III starting to make waves and make noise and cause a little bit of concern throughout certainly Western Europe. The, the British government decided they needed to bolster the troops and created this citizens volunteer force of various different factions spread throughout the country to try and ward off any threat of invasion or attacks or such like. And one of those was based in Glasgow uh, in, the, in the south side, called, the, as I say, the, the Third Lanarkshire Rifle Volunteers, or words to that effect. I can't, I can't quite remember the exact term, but it was along those lines and, you know, based out the Dixon Halls in the south side of the city and... You know they were they were looking for things to do to pass the time when they they weren't preparing for imminent attack and you know football very quickly arose on their agenda and it was actually the the first ever international football match between England and Scotland in Partick that prompted the formation of thirds because the the riflemen had been in attendance at that game a drab match a terrible experience by all accounts a horrific weather not much to report in the way of goal mouth action and nonetheless it inspired these these riflemen to go ahead and form their own football club which very quickly uh, you know it became third lanark as as we knew them so yeah to your original point did i expect to start off in france not in a million years but I was it, it was quite nice in a sense to to trace it all that all that way back. It's a strange starting point, but uh, a nice starting point as well. You have spoken with your research to lots of different players, uh, some of whom just played against Third Lanark, some of whom played with Third Lanark, and all of them seem to have a kind of um, anger towards the demise of the club, and it seemed to be a kind of it seemed inevitable, but yet nobody was willing to do anything about it. Um, do you think that uh, the authorities at the time should have done more than they did to prevent the collapse of thugs? Unquestionably, they should have. I just wonder to what extent they knew of the shenanigans that were going on. You know, this day and age, it's very easy to know what's happening. I think the Scottish Football Association take more of a an interest in the type of people who are running football clubs. I think they've had to. It's been forced upon them, hasn't it? with some of the higher profile collapses. Uh, yeah, you know, should they have paid more attention? Absolutely, they should have. But thirds operated, it appears, as very much of a, a closed shop. And to be honest, it, it was always set up for some kind of catastrophe. You know, they were always at risk of the wrong people 
getting in charge of the club and taking control. You know, the the very structure of the club. You know, you go back to that time, and most football clubs, certainly in Scotland, were owned by individuals or families. They were the ones that had the control. Thirds weren't like that. You know, they were a shareholder based model and basically anyone who wanted to buy shares in the club could do so if they got the the opportunity or managed to get the ear of people. So that left them vulnerable to takeovers by entirely the wrong kinds of people. And that's really what happened. You know, they were taken over by people who I don't think acted with the club's best interests at heart and certainly didn't really have the business acumen required to run a football club. Different times, yes, but a lot of the same principles apply where you need to have certain skills, certain abilities to to just run a club efficiently, profitably. And the people who took over thirds, led by Bill Hiddleston, simply just did not have that. Whether they had the desire to run the club properly, you know, they've taken those answers to the grave, unfortunately. But from the outside looking in, it certainly seems they just didn't have the skills in the first instance. I agree with you, and I think it's uh, summed up by one of your interviewees saying that um, his family lived on the same street as Bill Hiddleston, but had no idea who he was, didn't know the first thing about him, just seemed like a completely alien character who came out of nowhere. Um, And the weirdest thing I find about Hiddleston is he wasn't actually a bad football manager by some of the standards of of the managers that they actually had uh, running the club, which it seems you also mentioned the turnover of managers. And nowadays in this day and age, particularly down south in England, you see if managers don't get off to a good start, if they have four or five defeats or bad results on the trot, then that's them immediately under pressure. But back then, thirds really seemed to have a a big turnover of managers compared to most other clubs, you would say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at, say, Rangers, for example, and, and Bill Struth, who was there forever. Scott Simon at that time as well, in the mid-60s, he survived longer than he would in this day and age. You know, he was very unpopular with the Rangers' support, but managed to get the the, the support and the backing of the people in charge of the club. That Yeah, very different times back then. Thirds had this ridiculous turnover of, of managers and I think that in its own way explains a little bit of the the shenanigans in terms of how the club was being run you know there were a lot of different factions who were all fighting it out in the shadows trying to claim a, a controlling stake in the club with varying degrees of success as soon as somebody managed to come in and garner enough shares then the manager changed and then a few months later when somebody else came in with more shares and tried to take over that part of the club the manager changed again. So it was a a time of complete boardroom turmoil, the likes of which we've become a little bit more used to, but it was just a shambles that the club was run appallingly, which is a shame because they, they lacked nothing when it came to support. I mean, it was a very fervent fan base that they had and still have to this day, bizarrely. And the talent that they had on the pitch was some of the best talent that Scotland had to offer at the time. I think uh, more of the bizarre decisions in the boardroom kind of reflect upon what they did with players. Like uh, you mentioned Ali McLeod, who obviously is more famous for his managerial exploits than his uh, playing exploits. But um, you mentioned about how he was sold for what seemed like a kind of cut price to St Mirren. But and he didn't really want to go, but he was told, you know, you'll basically keep the club alive if you go. 
So he did. Um, and I just find that absolutely bizarre. Uh, what were your impressions of Bill Hiddleston before taking on uh, the research for the book, given that he's the figurehead of the demise? And have your opinions of him changed at all, having looked into his character more? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, I from the outside looking in, I I pretty much had decided that Bill Hiddleston was the the villain of the piece. You know, he was the the Joker to the various players' Batman. You know, he was the he was the bad guy. And yeah, you know, certainly in my research, didn't really discover anything that would make me challenge that too much. He was responsible for the club going to the wall. He did a lot of incredibly underhand things. I think for me, though, the, the biggest thing was getting the Hiddleston family's version of events on record for the first time. That's never happened. You know, everyone has decided that Bill Hiddleston was this, that, and the other, and as far as the third Lanark story goes, but nobody ever really had put his surviving relatives' case forward. And that was really important to me from the outset. I didn't want to do a, a character assassination or put him into the position of villain without being able to justify it. So I did a, a fair old amount of digging. Uh, I knew that he had three children. I didn't know if any of them were still alive or, or what the deal was there. Um, but I managed to track down his youngest son, Crawford, to Argentina, where he now lives. And Crawford, uh, a lovely, lovely man, very laid back, uh, exceptionally chilled out. And yeah, I'm, I'm delighted that he gave me the chance to put the family's version of events out there. And yeah, you know, you'll, you'll read it in the book yourself, but I think Crawford and his dad had a, not a difficult relationship, just not a particularly strong father-son relationship. And that certainly came over in my, my chats with him. He didn't make any attempt to, you know, condone what his father did. He feels very sorry for everything that happened to Third Lanark and all the people who were affected, both players and fans, by the club's demise. And yeah, it was it was interesting just to to speak to Crawford and get that sense of, you know, the the family that's left behind. I think he he spoke very well, and I, I I'm not sure it's going to change any minds. I, I don't think it's going to necessarily make Bill Hiddleston a more sympathetic character in the eyes of the the club's fans and those who have decided that he is ultimately responsible. It, it just shows the, the sort of human elements to this mysterious, shady character. When you were interviewing subjects, you spoke to a lot of ex-players. Who would you say was the most engaging of all of the ex-players that you spoke to? Oh, God, I mean, they were all tremendous, to be fair, um, in, in their own different ways. Mike Jackson, who obviously went on to have a great career uh, with Celtic Aston Villa and such like. Mike, uh, the, I think the, the anger is most noticeable in Mike because he grew up as a third Lanark fan. They were his team and he had the opportunity to go on and play for them and then had to sit back as a bystander and watch as the club collapsed. His, his anger is definitely still there, um, bubbling just under the surface. A very articulate man, very nice guy. Uh, likewise, Tony Connell. Tony, when he left thirds, went on to St Mirren. And the thing that I noticed really, the difference between Tony and Mike is whereas Mike has that anger about what happened, the, the, the first thing that you notice with Tony is just sadness. 
it's written all over his face when you speak to him. You know, it, it, it lingers and it hurts him a lot. And then you've got Alan Mackay, who was the club captain towards the end. Alan, wonderful gentleman. Uh, I visited him at his home down in Ayrshire and we spent hours chatting about the club. Uh, he, he, I guess he's the voice of reason, you know, as club captains would be and was able to articulate a lot of the things that went on. Some of them, frankly, hilarious when you look back at the, the underhand and slightly crazy penny-pinching behaviour and then others just almost criminal. So, yeah, I was fortunate to speak to as many of the surviving members of the, the squad from that final season as I could find. Sadly, a lot of them no longer with us, but uh, yeah, those that I did get the chance to speak to were fantastic. Offered lots of different perspectives on, on how and why the club collapsed. And when you were going through these interviews, what was the most bizarre story that you heard from them about <laughs> uh, the, the underhand penny-pinching that you came across? Yeah, um, Henry McLeish actually the, the former First Minister of Scotland told a good one he played for East Fife for a spell and played at Cathkin scored at both ends scored for East Fife and managed to get an own goal and I think he was also if I remember right he may have been red carded in the game as well so it was like Craig Burley's World Cup in France 98 but all contained into one match <laughs> hero, villain and bizarre but yeah he told this great story of the East Fife players before they set off for the, the match all going and buying light bulbs because they knew that such provisions weren't going to be made available in the away dressing room. So they brought their own light bulbs, they brought their own soap, even though they knew there would be no hot water. So they turned up with those things. And Alan Mackay told this tremendous story about how a couple of the, the team's younger players in a bid to cut costs, the, the bathing facilities at Cathkin were horrific. I mean, just so outdated and dilapidated. So the club's boss for the first half of the final season, uh, a man called Frank Joyner, put into his own pocket and went and bought new tiles to replace the broken tiles in the, in the bath, this big communal bath that they had. And he said to the, the lads, he went in one day and said, OK, I've got all these tiles. Can anyone retile the bath for us? Who wants to do it? And a couple of the players, I think it was Colin Bailey and the late John Colgannon put their hands up and said, yeah, we'll do that, boss, no bother. So sure enough, after training, everyone else goes home and uh, Bailey and Colgannon stick around, get on with the tiling, do a fantastic job. I mean, this thing is just sensational. Wouldn't look out of place in, in you know, Caesar's Rome. It's, it's that nice of a bath. And the next match comes and goes, the players use the bath, fill it up, and the arrangement that they had was the last player out of the bath empties it. So the next day after the game, players go back to Cathkin for training. The bath's still full, absolutely mucky, full of bits of turf, swimming through it. Frank Joyner gathers the team and says, right, who didn't unplug the bath? And this young lad, I can't remember his name, I can't remember who it was now, puts up his hand and says, oh, it was me, boss. He says, why didn't you empty it? He said, well... Couldn't find the plug hole, boss. And sure enough, Bailey and Colgannon had tiled over the plug hole. So there was no way of draining it out other than to go and get big pails of buckets and, and chuck the water out that way. So, yeah, I mean, there was, there was all kinds of bizarre stuff that, that went on. Um, just dreadful. Actually, there was a great story as well of, at that time, you had to have a new football for every single match. Brand new, fresh out the wrapper. 
and the people, whether it was Hiddleston or, or one of his cronies, had found a great way of getting around this. So they got the players to kick off with this brand new football and it was passed back as quickly as possible to one of the centre-halves, in this case Jim Little, who knocked it over the stands, out the back of the park where there was somebody waiting to collect it. And then what was thrown back over was an old used football that had been painted white to make it look like new. So they kept a new one and put it aside for the next week and the next week. So they didn't mount up these you know, tiny costs for new footballs every week. They just kept reusing the old one painted. And that was going fine until this particularly wet day. Ball gets crossed into the middle of the box. Player rises, heads it away, and he's left with this big streak of white paint right across his forehead. At that point, they were rumbled. So whatever opportunity they could find or way that they could get away with not paying money, the, the people in charge of thirds absolutely exploited it. They were masters of it. Uh, finally, just to finish up, would you like to see a third line at Phoenix Club um, return to Cathkin Park at some point? I think everybody would. You know, it, it, it's a lovely thought and it would be the best place for the story to end. Unfortunately, I don't see it happening. You know, there's, there's too many things standing in their way. There have been various attempts to resuscitate the club and to bring them back. I know that there is an amateur side that plays in the Glasgow Leagues and they have ambitions of getting back there. But, you know, it requires a lot of things, and not least of which is for another club to ultimately suffer much the same fate that Thirds did and to disappear, whether that's, you know, to, to lose the investment or just to drop down the leagues. But look, these are different times. You go back to when Thirds collapsed, going into administration wasn't an option. You know, legally that didn't exist. That only came to be in the, the 80s. So that's why clubs like Motherwell and Airdrie and, you know, Hamilton, Partick Thistle have been able to keep going despite the various financial crises that they've had. Legally, they have found ways and mechanisms to continue. Thirds didn't have that, that luxury. So there's that. There's also the fact that it's so competitive now in that, that top end of the, the amateur scene. You look at like East Kilbrides and... Kelty Hearts and Cove Rangers that have all either come through or have got very close to coming through. Thirds have a huge, huge task on their hands to get anywhere near it and they're going to need a lot of money and they're going to need to be run properly. It kind of feels like the sum of all those parts is just going to be insurmountable. But wouldn't it be amazing? I mean, you know, Cathkin's still there. You know, it's, yes, like you rightly said, it's covered by trees and by foliage and just the the... The passage of time has reduced it to wreck and ruin. But it will always be a football ground. You know, it's, it's designated green space. The City Council and various other factions that have a controlling stake run it as a football pitch. It would just be so nice to see a third Lanark team playing in whatever capacity back there. I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. You know, I'm mid-30s, so <laughs> there's still hopefully a lot of that to go. But it's, it's a nice thought but I don't think it'll ever amount to anything more than that. Thanks to Michael for taking the time to speak to us. The Ghosts of Cathkin Park is published by Berlin and is released on the 16th of September. Priced normally at £17.99, listeners of the Scottish Football Citizen can take advantage of 20% off for a limited time by entering the discount code CATHKIN21 
on the Berlin website when buying the book. That's Kathkin21. Having received an advanced copy of the book, I thoroughly enjoyed the way Michael brought the club back to life in the pages of this. It's a must read for any fan of Scottish football history. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Scottish Football Citizen. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And join us again next week when we'll be looking back at more of the best of Scottish football from the past. If you'd like an extra football fix in your inbox every Tuesday, you can subscribe to Football Memories Scotland's weekly newsletter, The Football Special, and receive an email full of excellent pictures and stories from days gone by. To find out more, email lindsay at lindsay.hamilton at scottishfootballmuseum.org.uk The Scottish Football Citizen is written, edited and produced by Andy Kerr for Football Memories Scotland in association with Alzheimer's Scotland and the Scottish Football Museum. Additional contributions from Robert Harvey, Jim Orr, Lindsay Hamilton and Richard McBrearty. Special thanks to Michael McEwen and Jamie Harris of Berlin Publishing. <laughs>